Yeah, what's all this? Keep back there. Keep back me? Do you know who you're talking to? I give you a last chance to leave me alone. Give me a last chance? You've committed assault this when you've done, and you can come along to the station with me. Come along now, come quietly, unless you want me to put the handcuffs on. Stop where you are. You don't know what you're doing. I know what I'm doing, all right. Come on. Get hold of him. Lock him up. All right, you fools. You've brought it on yourselves. Everything would have come right if you'd only left me alone. You've driven me near madness with your peering through the keyholes and gaping through the curtains. And now you'll suffer for it. You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? All right, I'll show you. There's a souvenir for you. And one for you. I'll show you who I am and what I am. <laughs> Look, he's all eaten away. Huh? How do you like that, eh? <laughs> <laughs> You are listening to They Must Be Destroyed On Sight. The following podcast contains adult language, adult situations, and spoilers for the movies discussed occur often. You've been warned. Now, take it away, Dr. Rausch. They must be destroyed on sight. Welcome back. It is They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, episode 216. And I'm your host, Lee, peering through the keyholes and gaping through the curtains, Russell. Joined by my co-host, Daniel. A few murders here and there. Harper, how you doing, sir? I'm doing 216. What have we done with our lives? Well, I mean, seriously. Anyway, great. We're doing, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I want to, I was a 216, you know. We've done more episodes than we have listeners at this point, but, you know, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, and uh, welcoming back after a long fucking time, James, a couple of drinks and a gust of wind, Murphy. How you doing, sir? Oh, man, that, that exactly describes the evening. Well done. In terms of what you've done with your lives, you've brought joy into the existence of literally dozens of perverts, so don't feel like it's a, a life that's been wasted, guys. You're doing great. Yeah. And you, you think uh, 216 episodes is, is, is something, uh, Daniel. I actually looked back tonight to find the last time James was on the podcast. He was on episode 78. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> covering the skull and, strangely enough, coincidence regarding the late Diana Rigg, Theater of Blood. So <sighs> That was so long yeah. ago that Daniel still sounded like Walter Matthau, you know? <laughs> no my feeling on that is just like you know that was so long ago like remember back when the days were nice and like california was not on fire all the time like mm. that was you know yeah. yeah when california didn't look like mars like 
<laughs> you never realise you're living through a golden age of properly tinted reality until it's behind you, do you? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And speaking of seeing things and not seeing things, uh, tonight we are doing The Invisible Man from 1933. Uh, before we get into that, uh, we'll do a little bit of house cleaning here and just uh, talk about what we've watched as of late. I know Daniel has nothing to mention this time out, but uh, James I, I does. Movies. I don't like movies. I don't know why I, you invite me onto this. I don't, I don't watch it. It's fine. <laughs> An increasingly hostile Daniel there as you move mm-hmm. into your uh, third century. Yeah, just a couple of very quick ones um, and nothing that's going to be revelations to anyone listening. I watched uh, the movie Knives Out with uh, James Bond as Colonel Sanders. It was pretty good. It was a good time. Each of the character actors had their moments to shine on there, and it's just nice to see an original piece of media, not based on a comic book, not coming out of the mind of some demented noir author, having fun with the form, and uh, getting towards the end of what looks like a happy ending. So, yeah, good stuff there. And it was a kind of a double bill, and they ended up, kind of complement each other politically and what they had to say, but in slightly different approaches. The other one was The Hunt, where a liberal group of people go hunting after humanly, you know, dangerous game style, a group of what they think are Trump supporters. And that's an excellent film as well. Heartily recommend. I won't give any plot details away apart from the premise, but I would say listeners should check both of those movies out. Hmm. Yeah, I've been wanting to check out uh, The Hunt. I've I've seen Knives Out. I need to I need to rewatch it a couple times before I actually like do any sort of review on it or whatever. But um, and I enjoyed it quite a bit, by the way. But I was yeah. like, it's just kind of one of those movies where you watch and it's like, wow, I'm watching something really, really good. This yeah. is really, really good. <laughs> it's funny. It's funny. Like for me, like my experience of like talking about Knives Out online with uh, people from uh, the British Isles is, uh, you know, yeah, this is just Agatha Christie. And, you know, as an American, like, we don't get Agatha Christie in our, like, pop culture. Like, it just isn't a thing, you know. Like, it's, you know, there may be some masterpiece theater out there. It's like, oh, yeah, there are people uh, with fancy accents solving crimes on trains. And that's all all that, like, Agatha Christie is, you know. Um, And so I think that uh, it's interesting that that James uh, appreciated Knives Out more than any person from that part of the world that I've spoken to has uh, even just being like, yeah, vaguely positive. Yeah, no, this was a good time. I enjoyed this because you know, everyone else I've talked to is like, yeah, this is just a pale Agatha Christie retread. So I find that interesting. You know, <laughs> I mean, I like to think that those who dislike knives out for those reasons are all fusty kernels of an entire collection of Hercule Poirot novels. And I'm going yeah. to choose to believe that this is an action of class war on my part to have enjoyed the movie as much as I have. <laughs> I, I'm on board with that. I'm on board with that. No, I'm just gonna say, you know, the, it has possibly the greatest line in cinema history, which is, uh, you know, like uh, I haven't read Gravity's Rainbow. No one has. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, I just got one thing I'll mention, and um, this was one I was like actually kind of hesitant to, to watch at first, but I, was, I just thought, oh fuck it, I'm gonna do it anyway. It, it just just popped up on Netflix. It's uh, from 2020. Hashtag alive, and uh, it was because of the hashtag in the title. I, I guess that's something maybe we need to accept in the coming years that that's just going to be part of titles here and there, maybe. Uh, but it's a so uh, is it cre- hashtag spelled out or is it hashtag the symbol? Hashtag the symbol. Yeah. So it could very easily be called Octothorpe alive, and I think that's a thing that we should encourage. I don't, Number I don't, alive, perhaps? 
tic-tac-toe alive? Well, the, the, the thing is, it's, it's a Korean zombie film, a South Korean zombie film. And if you've liked Train to Busan, for instance, uh, this is very much in that vein. It's got the sort of fast zombie thing, but it, it's set in an, a, like an apartment block in Korea. So it's this young kid who's very tech-savvy. He just finds himself stuck in his apartment. His parents and, and his uh, the rest of his family have gone out on like a trip, and they feel like, oh, we we've left very little food in the house. Go out and get some groceries, you know. But he's he's a typical like you know young slacker kid who's into playing online games and doing social media shit all the time. So he hesitates on getting groceries, and then all of a sudden, zombie outbreak, and he watches it from you know his apartment. All the streets below, everything just goes to shit. And it's like all of a sudden he's stuck in the apartment and he's got to find food and water very soon. And so he sort of uses his tech savvy instincts to try to help him. Like he's got a little drone at one point that he utilizes for several different things. Gets in contact with a survivor on the co- on the apartment block across the street. This young woman who's just as tough as nails uh, chick who's who survived just by pure guile more than anything else. And they just, they have to, like, hatch a plan together to try to escape and then, like, get to rescued by somebody, you know. That's kind of their hope. But it's really well done. Uh, I thought it was really well acted. And the real benefit here, especially for people who maybe find a lot of sort of East Asian horror films these days far too long, this is, like, a half hour shorter than Train to Basan. So, uh, mm. it, you know, it's in and out much quicker held my attention for the entire viewing. I enjoyed it. You know, it's, it's, it's nothing super revolutionary thing. It's, it's kind of lightweight and fun in some ways, but it's also really good with the horror stuff. Some of the set pieces of the zombies and stuff, because he, he has to, you know, creep out of his door into these fucking narrow hallways that are just swarming with zombies because, you know, almost everybody else in his apartment building got infected right away. Right. So he's like literally the only one in there and he's got to like, sort of navigate his way through his apartment building to get food and shit like that. So it's it's really well done. That sounds good. It's been a little while since I've watched a uh, East Asian horror film. The last one that I really zoomed into was, I think it was last year's One Cut of the Dead. And I enjoyed that, but I would rather if it had dropped most, probably 75% of the gimmick that it chose to. If it had just gone with what the first half hour of that movie was, I would come out of it a lot more satisfied. But no, hashtag live, I'll have to check it out. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I've been enjoying a lot of uh, this sort of East Asian horror lately. Uh, a lot of Indonesian horror has been pretty big right, right ever since like the Korean horror boom. Like the Indonesian stuff has gotten a lot of attention too. So um, some really good stuff uh, coming into that part of the world right now. But uh, yeah. All right. Uh, so we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we're going to play a little bit of uh, promos and some music, and we're going to come back and talk about The Invisible Man. You ungodly warlock. You go through your week with the same old routine. What you really want is some blood and thunder in your life. Well, friend, you found it. The Chromecast is an adventurous journey through the history of two-fisted pulp stories with your hosts, John, Josh, and Luke. We have action, horror, and adventure. All through the lens of pulp luminary Robert E. Howard. Don't just stay in your ordinary life. Find your pulp life at thecromcast.blogspot.com. The Chromcast. The Chromcast. The Chromcast. A podcast for the barbarian at heart. You ungodly warlock. 
The Invisible Man, 1933, directed by James Whale. You might have heard of him. We've, we've mentioned him a couple times on this podcast as of late. Uh, once, once or twice. Once or twice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, this is uh, based on the story written by H.G. Wells, just some dude. He wrote a couple books, you know, whatever. Uh, <laughs> Invented science fiction, arguably, you know. <laughs> that guy. Yeah. Uh, that... Uh, Genesis. Uh, you, you know, other other thing we should know about. You know. It was the 1920s. Everyone was allowed to be eugenicists if they wanted to be. It hadn't been proved wrong yet. Yeah, they, <laughs> well, they, that's they, it, it. It had. It had. It had. <laughs> they, could, they could be. <laughs> they could be mildly racist. They could uh, name their pets after you know uh, uh, racial slurs. You know, they could. All, they could do all kinds of stuff like that. It's just fine. <laughs> Um, H.G. Wells, not as bad as H.P. Lovecraft. That's <laughs> considerably worse than H.P. Source. Yeah. Uh, also written by uh, R.C. Sheriff. I uh, didn't see anything too interesting that he was connected to. Uh, Preston Sturgis added some uh, dialogue and stuff here. Famous director and, and writer. Known for his, you know, like, uh, sort of witty, comedic kind of uh, stuff that he he would direct and write. A lot of movies about uh, young women with uh, snappy dialogue and stuff I was sort of looking at in, in his uh, filmography there. Uh, also written by uh, Philip Weil, who's known for doing Island of Lost Souls from 1932. And uh, he, he was a novelist and sort of screenwriter. His uh, novel, When Worlds Collide, was adapted into the movie 
uh, in the 50s. Fairly well-known science fiction film. Move on to the cast here. We have Claude Rains as Dr. Jack Griffin, the Invisible Man, actor known for other stuff like The Adventures of Robin Hood from 38, Juarez from 39, which I actually put on our uh, list because it looked pretty interesting. It's about, like, Napoleon, the... I can't remember, but going to, like... Mexico during, I think, around the Mexican Revolution or something like that. and uh, Looked interesting. Also starred in The Wolfman from 41, which is one we're going to be covering in, a, you know, maybe three years when we get to 41. <laughs> when we finally cover the next eight years. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, here there was a person named James Murphy who was encouraging us to take as much time as possible to get through. <laughs> so. That's right. I'm, I was just about to say, if you do happen to slow down to a year per year, so 2020 is the year of 1933, <laughs> I'm quite happy to wait the 12 years to get to uh, the Wolfman. <laughs> uh and also uh famously known for being in casablanca from 42 uh among a lot of other stuff you know claude rains just not just some dude uh kind of (laughs) kind of did some stuff you have gloria stewart who we've already covered in uh the old dark house from 32 and of course she was she lived to age 100 and was in titanic in 1997 uh yeah so she did some stuff too. <laughs> it, would, it would only it would only be better if she had been in an affair to remember in, in fifty seven or whatever year that movie came out, you know, to complete the to complete the uh, the full picture there, you know. Yeah, it is nice though to be getting to this stage of Hollywood where um, you guys have mentioned it yourselves. When you look on the Wikipedia, I wonder if this guy did anything else. Immediately, death of cancer. Like the second they stopped filming, when the director said cut, they had an awful heart attack and arteriosclerosis, you know? Yeah. Died of alcoholism six months after filming was done. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, We've got William Harrington as Dr. Arthur Kemp. Uh, He'd go on to be in stuff like uh, G Men from 1935 uh, and Desert Fury from 1947. And then we got a bunch of other uh, people here. Henry Travers is Dr. Cranley. Una O'Connor, who would show up uh, later in um, Bride of Frankenstein. I guess she, she basically played this character in most of the movies she was in as, you know, the, the loud Irish woman, basically. <laughs> uh, Forrester Harvey is Herbert I, Hall. I.e. James's favorite. That's yeah. the, uh, you know. That's right. Anything that's Irish is the best. Boyzone is the best Irish band. Um, Guinness is the best possible stout. If it's Irish, it's the best example of the form. So Una O'Connor, best shrill woman who uh, has a strained relationship with a long-suffering husband. Mm. I really love the bagpipes. Uh, great Irish invention. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, that, and, that great, and that great type of Scott uh, whiskey called Irish. Uh, in the Highlands. The pee stuff. <laughs> yeah, that that, that that really that really stuff that tastes like fucking smoked mackerel. Yeah, that's yeah. stuff. Um, Holmes Herbert as the chief of police. <laughs> he, he, shut the fuck up. <laughs> I just I just love fucking with James Murphy. It's this. The... All right, all right, move on, move on, move on. Uh, e. e. Clive as Constable Jaffers, uh, Dudley Diggs as Chief Detective, Harry Stubbs as Inspector Bird, Donald Stewart as Inspector Lane, and Merle Trottenham as Millie. And uh, we have a synopsis here from uh, Jay Sperling on uh, IMDb. Mysterious man whose head is completely covered in bandages wants a room. The proprietors of the pub aren't used to making their house an inn during the winter months, but the man insists. 
They soon come to regret their decision. The man quickly runs out of money, and he has a violent temper uh, besides. Worse still, he seems to be some kind of chemist and has filled his room with messy chemicals, test tubes, beakers, and the like. When they try to throw him out, they make a ghastly discovery. Meanwhile, Flora Cranley appeals to her father to do something about the mysterious disappearance of Dr. Griffin, his assistant, and her sweetheart. Her father's other assistant, the cowardly Dr. Kemp, is no help. He wants her for himself. Little does Flora guess that the wild tales from newspapers and radio broadcasts of an invisible homicidal maniac are stories of Dr. Griffin himself, who has discovered the secret of invisibility and gone mad in the process. And yeah, that that pretty much covers it. Well done. Um, yeah, no, it's equally got about the same amount of percentage of concern, that synopsis, with uh, the state of an Edwardian drawing room as the film itself, which <laughs> is about 20%, which is great. You know, it's good that they captured that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, let's uh, let's get into it. So uh, I'm assuming this is not the first time you've seen this, James, but get into it and uh, sort of give us our, your general thoughts on it. Well, it's um, it's a James Well film, isn't it? So what you're going to be guaranteed is a level of quality and imagination and consideration that you're not going to find in a lot of other filmmakers at this time. And one of the absolute pleasures of the film is seeing the pleasure they're taking in solving issues that people haven't realised are issues yet. And so, whilst on the one hand I am enjoying the movie on its surface level as a not-about-comedy, as um, occasionally a thriller, what I'm really enjoying as well is just the sheer bravura filmmaking that you're getting out of it. So, yeah, its uh, reputation as a classic is well-deserved, I'd say. Right on. Uh, Daniel? Uh, this is not a first-time watch for me. I mean, I saw it a number of years ago. Um, but this was, But it has been a long time, and I didn't... You know, like, it's kind of one of those, like, oh, yeah, I kind of watched it vaguely at some point. Um, I don't know. Uh, we should probably talk about a little bit about the novel, which I read when I was, like, in, like, middle this, school, you know, when I was, this, like, 14 or so. Like, yeah, you this, know. this follows the novel fairly closely. Yeah, although, I, like, I don't remember the novel that well. The bits that I remember of the novel are mostly in this movie. Although, if, you, if know, that makes sense, you know, yeah, Wells was a humorless chap like none of the none of the humor that you see in this film is present at all in the novel (laughs) right yeah but yeah no uh i really enjoyed this i think it's uh i mean it's obviously kind of a masterpiece of its era i mean james whale everything that james said is completely accurate um what i found interesting is kind of thinking about the sort of the context of the novel which was written in 1897 and the film in 1933 in terms of sort of like the state of like where the science was in terms of like because you know in the novel it's sort of like oh i invented a bunch of elixirs that individually converted my flesh to like various shades of transparent and then like quote-unquote magic 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 happens and then and now i'm invisible and like he's kind of portrayed as being like i was kind of crazy to begin with and then by 1933 it's more of sort of like um you know i've got like this one chemical that will do this and i'm looking for the antidote etc etc um and i think there's a real like sort of like (laughs) big history of organic chemistry that happened between 1897 1933 he he was even he was even wells was even criticized at the time that like as much as he like 
and if you actually read the story, he he does go, you know, fairly well into detail about what's happening, okay. right? Like uh, enough where, you know, the layman can sort of go, okay, I can buy that. But someone like pointed out to him the process he uses. If you were actually able to turn someone's entire body invisible in the way that it's sort of described, they would go completely blind because they'd have no way to like, you know, protect their eyes from light, basically. Mm-hmm. Is, is well, you'd have no, you can't like refract light in your right. eyes. It's, you know, because of that. And like, this is kind of one of those like kind of magic things that we get from any Invisible Man story, right? You know, mm-hmm. it's like, it just kind of has to be that way. But I find it interesting. I kind of got from this, like kind of watching it this afternoon, I kind of got this like sense of like, there is this kind of real, um, fear of the or just kind of the way that the science is portrayed is kind of interesting because you know when you're talking about like kind of the 1890s this whole like idea of you know the mad scientist with like beakers and tubes and you know these kind of you know like big glass vials and lots of bubbling things kind of kind of wandering around like this lasts for a long time in pop culture because like you know Organic chemistry was this like brand new thing. The electron was discovered in 1933, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and so like uh, you know, early uh, chemists, the chemists in the in, 19th century, developed this whole like praxis around like how to actually make these like kind of complicated organic products without really having a theoretical understanding of how to do it. And so there was this kind of magic involved even for the people doing the work mm-hmm. at the time. And the theory actually like trailed behind the praxis by some decades just because we had no technology that allowed us to understand that kind of... And like, the mathematics hadn't even been invented at that mm-hmm. point. And so uh, I do... I don't know. Like I know this is like really obscure and not necessarily what people come here for, but I did find that like interesting that like by 1933, they're not even really talking about like what the thing is it's really just it's presenting him as oh yeah i've got this elixir i've got this kind of i've got like my little powders and i've got my little like you know my, my glass vials and everything and i'm developing my thing and this is supposed to be like i'm a crazy crazy person despite the fact that we're now at the beginning of the nuclear age like 1933 is also the year in which the atom was first split so you know like it's <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, yeah, no, uh, crazy. We're we're in that in that realm between uh, uh, chemistry, moving on into nuclear science, and uh, yeah, no. by by the fifties, it becomes, uh, you know, like a few years later, this would have been made as, uh, you know, oh, I did some weird experiment with X rays or whatever. Yeah, I did some weird experiment, you know, and so it is it is kind of weird that at this point it is just kind of this like weird magic that allows him to be invisible. Um, I don't know. Uh, I like the film. That's just kind of what came to mind uh, upon watching it. So it's interesting because um, you do catch medical society on the cusp between the alchemical and the actually scientific, as we understand it today, moving uh, more towards that. Well, obviously, the scientific method means it's constantly theoretical. But you're going from like John D to Robert Oppenheimer, and this is the link in between those. And uh, that's really fun. That's a fun part of it, because he is essentially a wizard in this, and it could be just mm. as easily set 400 years previously, you know? Yeah, yeah. Or it the, could have been the, some magic, you know, magic spell or something. You know, I mean, we did, um, we did the what was the first the zombie movie we did a few weeks ago? Um, yeah. White zombie. Yeah, white zombie. Yeah, it could very easily have been like some spell that he has or some like magic 
thing I got from the natives of some island somewhere or something. Well, but well, yeah, they they do mention what it is, right? Like it, it, there's some sort of chemical compound they extracted from this like rare flower, and then of course the the flower was just just like the pure chemical or whatever they used turned like a dog pale white or something like that, right? right. And then they and it turned it mad as as well. So it's like the the side effect mm-hmm. is it turns you crazy. Uh, and so our our scientist here, Griffin, he he describes some po- at some point in the film where he did like a thousand experiments with this chemical to try you know uh, make it work properly, and then finally he got to the point where it doesn't turn you white anymore; it turns you invisible as shit. And so he injected them to himself, and now he's trying to reverse the process, which he just fails to do utterly in 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 the film. But. Uh, Maybe you should have solved that problem before you injected yourself, you fucking asshole. <laughs> you <know? laughs> but you totally buy that of Claude Rain's character, even if we're supposed to accept that he's become a, uh, a more evil and uh, destructive madman. You absolutely get the sense that this is a guy who will go, there's no time at all, and just inject it straight into his veins rather than do anything. But the uh, the science and the approach in the movie is in keeping with the tradition of Wells who is a science fiction, well, creator, the creator of the genre, arguably, as you say, Daniel, is much more interested in the fiction than the science. Like his uh, Journey to the Moon book is pretty much people standing on a really powerful trampoline and getting to the moon from there. <laughs> yeah. And um, which is, you know, that's 60 years before the Apollo missions. That's still really impressive that, you know, <laughs> he anticipated as much as he actually did. But again, it does go back to how faithful an adaptation of the novel and the spirit of the novel, apart from the humor, that this is. Yeah. Well, and Jules, Jules Verne was the sort of like the, you know, I'm, I'm designing like the engineering version of this. Yeah. You know, I'm going <laughs> to launch my people going to the moon from a big cannon. And then, like, he, he complained that Wells is like, oh, you just got some anti-gravity metal. Like, that would ever work. No, big cannon. That's the way this is going to happen. You know? Like, you know. I, find, um, I, find, and I, and I find it amusing, like, if you look at something like League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, it, like, it incorporates all of those things. So, like, you'll, you'll have the Nautilus. So that works. But you also have uh, fucking Moriarty trying to get a hold of this anti-gravity material and, and, and use that to, you know, control the world and make airships and stuff like that. So Yeah, sorry, sorry to uh, take us along that path for that block. <laughs> right, you know, but it was definitely, like, I did, I do enjoy the movie and I do enjoy sort of the plot of the movie, but it did, like, that was the thing that struck me immediately was that kind of, like, that that friction between you know sort of like the 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 1890s when the story was written versus the 1930s and sort of the way that like it's been updated but not really in the way that then this sort of this vision of um you know what a mad scientist looks like plays into kind of future films of this era you know it just mm-hmm. kind of gets bigger and you do like more and more you know you get more and more bubbling vials essentially as as you get a bigger budget like that's his his, his lab looks like like uh, the, uh, the 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 father slash doctor character who you know is, is the father of the love interest who you know um his lab i love how his lab looks in, in this film like yeah. it's a and, and, and for, like when I first saw this years ago, I thought, "Oh shit!" Like I was looking at the sets and the and the inn that Griffin goes to, and it's like, "Wow, this kind of looks sort of cheap." Is this whole movie going to be like set dressed like this? And then you get to this guy's fucking house and this fucking lab, and it looks great. But at the same time, it's like a very um, 
utilitarian kind of lab. Like it's very spacious and every like almost everything's on this one table and he's got these big open windows behind the lab and you look outside to the like the, the dead trees because it's like wintertime when this takes place and um, just just looks very, very good. But um, yeah, I like this a lot. Uh, I, I like, you know, whales injecting humor into this like uh we were talking about old dark house. You can sort of see his sensibilities creep into everything he does. And it really works here, especially with, um, reigns as Griffin, because, you know, in the actual original story, he's just a reprehensible piece of shit that you could not possibly be interested in, like kind of following in any sort of way where it's like, you're sympathetic to him to any degree, really. Like he's just, he's just an asshole who murders people. And he's, he's got the, he's got the agency and license to do it now because he's invisible. But here, you know, Reigns, who has this theatrical background and he's got to be basically off camera for the 99% of his screen time in this film. (laughs) And, so his theatrical background really comes into play here where he has to act bigger. He has to be bigger in the way he, he talks, the way he moves, and it just works really well. Like in any other film, it, it would feel like he's just chewing the scenery and it, it might be it might stand out a little too much, but here it's perfect. And I just like that <laughs> I just like that Griffin is just this self indulgent, lazy asshole a lot of the time too. Like he's just he, he he likes to put on you know, like a uh, fucking uh, fucking smoking jacket and just lounge around. He likes to sleep a lot, uh, and you know he goes to bed wearing PJs. He complains about the cold uh, <laughs> as he's going crazy. Uh, and I mean, again, you know, this... he is spending a lot of time naked. Like just to be clear, yeah. you know, like that's something that is you know is explicit in the film that you know like I don't actually he is naked. The thing no one ever mentions, like he got a big floppy docky dick just hanging out there in the snow there, don't you, buddy? You know. Like, I reckon uh, there's a uh, there's a game to be played. Uh, which parts of the film is he indulged and which flaccid as he goes around naked? Because he's got to enjoy some of it. So when he's in the bar knocking people's hats off and all that sort of stuff, I reckon he's as hard as a diamond, personally. <laughs> he, he knocked those glasses off. The bar. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I just a, imagine like after he dies, you know, because like all of his like flesh becomes like uh, visible again as he dies for like magic reasons. Like uh, and then suddenly like all the semen stains like. Sh- <laughs> 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 I'd better yeah. invent something called the black light to see exactly what's done wrong here. Yeah, if you put a black light in that fucking inn that he was staying in at the time, it, it would just be it would just be all one color. It, it would just be. <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't see anything else. Um, I, I will say also, like, if, if there's any detriment to this film, um, it's also the humor when it gets to like, like the comedic foil cops because you get like probably the most egregious version of what's all just in from a cop that that you're ever going to see on film. Like, it it is like the quintessential fucking you, you know Cockney kind of cop who's just like. You just done a crime, you did, and it's like, yeah, thanks, dude. Um, and also, uh, the the innkeeper's uh, wife, uh, the the female innkeeper, Je- uh, Jenny Hall, played by um, Una O'Connor. I think sometimes she goes a little too over the top with her hysterics, like to the point where it's grating. Like I, I'm like, you could tone it down a little bit. I get, I get it. You're, you know, you're the uh, uh, the loud complaining 
uh, Irish wife who, <laughs> who is, you know, frazzled by everything to the extent that no wonder your fucking husband drinks all the time. Like it's, he gets hit on the head. First thing he's doing is downing like a ton of like sherry or whiskey or the fuck he's drinking. Like you, you, you get that scene afterwards after he's assaulted by Griffin and he's got the bandage on his head and he's clearly drunk already. Like he, he's in like his fourth cup of booze at that point. <laughs> The, the film is the film is kind of like pitched to that like high camp level though you know which I feel well, like it's a thing that um, you know it'd be very easy to kind of like paint James Whale as a gay man who was a director you know who was you know a big name at the time and you know he's sort of recognized as being like oh yeah Bride of Frankenstein is like a full like camp movie it would be it's it's easy to kind of oversimplify that as like oh he's that's his aesthetic because he's gay or whatever but yeah. i think that this is meant to be both like it is a thriller it is horror but it is comedy and it is like mm-hmm. it is kind of like shockingly modern in, in a way you know like this is something that you can kind of i don't know i feel like that you could point this to people like it's not quite as modern as some of the other stuff that we've looked at and um but but i think you can kind of take kind of the horror comedy thing like horror comedy existed from the beginning of horror and movies basically Mm -hmm. and i think this is kind of a key to that it's like yeah it's horrific it's meant to be kind of a a story that kind of hits you on that level but uh it does use it does use the the heightened emotions to also give you some some funny bits and i feel like some of that performance is meant to be kind of over the top intentionally well, yeah, yeah no I, I i totally agree that like it's, it's supposed to be over the top i just feel like you know um the, like the the innkeeper's wife sometimes she gets a little sure. too high right like you shouldn't be matching claude rains and or, or even overtaking claude rains in, in your sort of like in, in the way you're acting because claude rains is just all over the place like he, he's chewing up the scenery he he is big he, he's got that this is another thing that's that's interesting about this film. He he's got that you know that really um, roll your R's kind of like British accent, you know, like very up sort of upper crust kind of aristocratic kind of idea, and like you you see the sort of stereotypical class differences here. So like you know you, you got the innkeeper, uh, the in, the innkeepers and their clients are all sort of you know the sort of typical stereotypical lower class and they're instantly suspicious of griffin and griffin is this educated guy who's just instantly intolerant of them and dismisses of them and treats them like serfs and you get a lot of the comedy from that too right like it it's very much like the, all these people like circling around him trying to figure out what he's about you know which you lock some towels uh uh, would you, would you like this? Would you like that? I'll bring up a drink for you and all that. And always peeking into his room. It's like, will you get out of my room? Will you leave me alone? Will you get the fuck out of my room? Uh, I'll wire the money to you tomorrow. And, you know, like all this other shit, right? And uh, that stuff works for the most part. But again, like every once in a while, they threaten to overtake Claude Rains, which I think is kind of a mistake. You, you make me think there should be a shot-for-shot shot remake with Vinnie Jones as Claude Rains. <laughs> <laughs> Say it in France. Vinnie Jones is Invisible Man in France. Just him really pissed off at the frogs what's around him. <sighs> but yeah, it's interesting because a lot of um, where this film's delight comes from is uh, the invisible man fucking with society's norms i would say that james well is having a great time um 
through the um, <coughs> prism of the Invisible Man, just doing exactly what he pleases. You know, he you can sense that he's just been pissed off by the small-minded, small townspeople that he's encountered in his life, and he's wanting to go out there and knock their hats off and throw bicycles at them. And um, for a lot of the movie, even as he's doing terrible things, just like a little casual murder in between his delighted giggling hijinks, uh, the movie's very much on his side, you know? Yeah, even when he's, and I mean, in 2020, it's like you, you, you strangle a cl- cop to the floor and then bash his face into a stool. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can, it's yeah. fine, kind of fine. All right, well then. Give him the choice. I'm, I'm not advocating the murder of cops, by the way, or at least not outside of Minecraft, but, uh, <laughs> you know. But uh, yeah, yeah, no. It, the film is the film. The sort of does the like it, it. It brings the viewer in and makes them sort of like you know, complicit with his crimes to a degree where it's like, you know, this would be really cool, wouldn't it? Right? Like he he murders a lot of people in this film off screen, so that that kind of that kind of lessens the degree of his horribleness because you don't see it happen. So you, as you as the viewer can be kind of like. All right, it's it's all right. He killed one or two cops on screen, but he fucked up that bar really well. Like he he, he pulled some people's pants down. He knocked a couple cops into a pile. He knocked some glasses off a fucking uh, countertop. You know, and I mean, you know, that innkeeper's wife. She really had that coming. Like, come on. I I think this is a place to sort of talk about the special effects a bit because, Mm. like, you know. A lot of it is kind of based on this almost like kind of vaudevillian, you know, oh, we're going to, you know, demolish the bar by, you know, we've got like strings and we're just going to shoot, you know, this string going along and like destroying all the glassware. We're going to pull people's pants down. We're going to, you know, kind of make people, you know, spin around or kind of do their thing. And like, I feel like that's kind of where a lot of the comedy or sort of this you know, this kind of vision of this kind of comes from is like, once you realize like this is the level of the effects you can do and this is the level of, um, you know, kind of, then it is kind of like once you, once you kind of like test it and once you look at it, you're kind of like, well, if this is what our horror scenes look like is, you know, a guy kind of clutching at his throat and going like, ah, you know, or whatever, <laughs> uh, you kind of have to like pitch this to a sort of comedy. And that's not as an insult to the special effects. I mean, this may be the first like kind of like really big effects movie like ever made because like it's very clear that um, you know they did have like shots that were designed for we're gonna look at the Invisible Man like standing around with his dick hanging out which you can't see and his like shirt sleeves which you can see you know sort of thing like there is a lot of that kind of going on in the movie and clearly they they developed. They did a bunch of screen tests. They kind of developed the technology that allowed yeah, them to do this they, uh, with uh, like kind of an early version of a blue screen, which is yeah. apparently like a black velvet suit he was wearing alongside. Mm-hmm. And then they did like a composite shot. I mean, this is cutting edge stuff. And like to really like focus on the effects, like an audience in 1932 isn't looking at this in the way that you and I are looking at it and going like, well, with CG, you could like make this seamless. And audience in 1932 was going to look at, or 1933 is looking at this and going like, how what the fuck am I even looking at? You know, yeah. this is a completely yeah. off the wall thing for an audience at that time. And so, like, just as a technical innovation, and the fact that like looking at it from the technology, 
doing the technology in the way that they did it and then kind of realizing like well this looks like this kind of big kind of comedy thing and so we kind of have to pitch the story a little bit more towards towards the campy comedy i think that's 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 kind of the genius of it that's why it works as well as it does and it isn't just sort of seen as a technical marvel that ultimately didn't work otherwise i mean this is remembered as a great film this know. isn't uh, deluge where it's like you know right. the, the effects are really all the movie's about right you know? right exactly exactly yeah it's fun because um the effects the tone you get the sense that well is tryingly trying desperately not to repeat Frankenstein. He doesn't want to make Frankenstein again. And everyone else involved is like, hey, let's do Frankenstein. That made a bundle of money. And so you're at the outset of the Universal Monster films with someone who's enjoyed the Gothic trappings previously but doesn't want to employ them here. And for me, that sort of lack of aesthetics, it's always a shame. I would love to have had some more broken down towers. I would like to have had uh, more um, like the Clarence Angel from It's a Wonderful Life. I'd like to have seen his laboratory be more like Frankenstein's. It would have been really cool. But um, that's not what the filmmaker was interested in making. He wanted to get sillier. He wanted to bring out the humour in this. And um, he probably wanted to show the special effects to, hey, look what I can do. You know, it's that awesome Wells thing where it's the uh, biggest train set boy can play with. You can sense that pleasure in mm. those scenes. Although at the same time, and yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Frankenstein. He kind of still does do Frankenstein in this film, right? Because you still get the idea of like you know the townspeople getting up in arms at at times they're running away from the invisible man at other times they're mobbing up to go and find him there's you know the burning of the barn at the end which sort of doubles for you know the the burning out of frankenstein's monster you know in that movie to to uh, you know to get him so there's still even though like and i i agree i think he, he definitely is trying to like move away from that He's still kind of caught in those trappings a little bit. He still kind of does it to a certain degree. There's less of a, but there's less of a sense that the, the townspeople are scared of this guy, although they are kind of scared mm. of this guy, as much as like the cops are like developing methods of kind of coming after him. One of the things I really appreciated is like the cops are really kind of like they're in a room and they're like maybe the invisible man is here, and so like mm. they put, you know, the 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 like the mesh and they like run across the room and make sure there's no invisible person in there and i mean you know there is there is a kind of lack of sort of awareness of you know some of the some of the tropes of the the invisible man um you know in terms of you know what that would be like you know later on you kind of see like the invisible man is like the hunted figure as opposed to the hunter and here it's more kind of like this kind of technological marvel and you know far be it for me to praise like you know thinking highly of cops in movies but you know there is a sense in which the movie is kind of thinking ahead and in terms of like well what would law enforcement do Mm. to protect themselves from this guy i was impressed by um what the police were doing it was well thought out all the way through and um in some places as well you can see the police acting as surrogates you know it's as if he's anticipating people talking back to the screen well he was a good idea mister Oh, I never thought of that. You know, it was uh, that kind of back and forth between one of the policemen and the chief police. Like, no, that wouldn't work because of this, this, and this. And he yeah, does... yeah, the... which which feels again very like modern filmmaking. You know, like James Whale is ninety years ahead. In, in some ways, <laughs> yeah, that, in terms that of, you know. the tired old cop is like they're explaining like, 
well, we, we need to, you know, crack down on these, you know, robberies and stuff like that. We got to check all these out. It's like, those robberies could have been committed by just normal people committing robberies <laughs> like they do all the time, you know? You can't really say that's the Invisible Man, you know, one way or the other. And uh, It'd be interesting yeah. to see, like, a police procedural built around, like, an Invisible Man, right? You know, where, you know, you just suddenly start seeing, like, random petty crimes and then, like, one murder... And then you kind of work out that, like, it had to be an Invisible Man because you see, like, video footage. And so, like, how do you, like, track down an Invisible Man uh, from, you, uh, like, a police procedure perspective, you, you know? No, you know, you know what I fucking want? I want Sherlock Holmes versus the Invisible Man. That's what and I that's, want. That would work. I'm kind of amazed that that never happened. Like, that totally should have happened in the 40s. Yeah. There's I mean, probably that... some episode or some issue, rather, of Leading a Story Gentleman where it happens and Adam Moore has something terrible happen to them both. Yeah, <laughs> but I do. I love uh, Daniel's idea of basically CSI Carpathian, where uh, the police go up against a new Universal monster every week, and it's just that monster of the week oh, format. David Caruso, <laughs> leader of a actually, team. Actually, I kind of want to see like Columbo or Monk. <laughs> oh, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, an invisible man. Yeah, that's very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, just one more thing. One more thing. Uh, where were you on this night? And uh, why couldn't anyone see you that night? What's going on? Uh, you know, my wife, she really does this shit and nags me. Uh, I just want to see the private detective do it. I just, I don't, I don't want, I don't want any more cop movies. Any more cop, mo- cop shows doesn't need to happen. But, you, want to, you want to keep the humor in, you, you get, you know, uh, oh, Jesus Christ. Totally... Could have Philip Marlowe versus Invisible Man. That'd be good. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, I just totally lost the, the '70s film where it's the the cop transported thirty years. Basically, uh, we we did it on the podcast. Uh, oh, oh my god! I can't believe it. It's one of the best movies ever made. I can't believe I just fucking blanked on it. <laughs> Are you thinking of the Long Goodbye? Long Goodbye. I think so. Yeah. 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 Where... That'd be great, yeah. Sexy Elliot Gould. That'd be yeah, really Elliot Gould. Yes, fucking. Yeah. It, that would work, you know, because it, that's funny throughout the entire thing. And it's like you can have the humor of him trying to catch this. And I mean, set the seventies. Have this fucking Invisible Man. You know what he's doing? He's peeping on chicks and fucking shower stalls and shit like that. Right? Like that's what we he's could doing. even bring in like a eighty sex comedy tropes on, on that. Yeah. You know? like, yeah, just see the coke disappear up his nose and then go into his system. <laughs> I kind of, I kind of want Ryan Johnson to direct this uh, with uh, jo- Joseph Gordon-Levitt as the detective, oh. and uh, Daniel Craig as the Invisible Man. That Sounds works. Good. That really works. Hollywood, call us, please. Yeah, come on, you guys are desperate right now for great ideas. You know, Just give us a shot. <laughs> we'll take your money. You can you can put someone to write your shit. Like you 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 give it some fucking hack who's gonna like. You know, put some titties in there, whatever. It's like we'll just we'll sell the idea to you and sit back and collect our millions. It's fine. They won't put titties in it. They'll just like turn it into a franchise and like completely ruin everything about it, and then put our names on it, and then yeah. we get all the Twitter hate. That's the, uh, that's the thing. we spend all the money we made trying to sue them to take our names off it. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the first film ever where literally everyone is cast, everyone is uh, credited as Alan Smithy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, the only other real note I had, like, you know, love the fucking film. It, it's an undisputed classic. I think I don't think there's anyone who, like, actively hates this film. If they do, I don't even know why they watch films. But we will find them in our in our YouTube comments. I'm sure you know. Sure, yeah. Uh, well, they'll, they'll just be looking for the movie. It's like it's on YouTube. You can actually find the movie on YouTube if you want to find it. <laughs> yeah. The only other thing that struck me here is how like iconic his look is with like you know the the sunglasses oh, and the goggles yeah, yeah. and then I mean Dark Man is an obvious comparison, right? But um, I was also thinking about uh, Mad Love with Peter oh, Lorre. Yeah. yeah. Um, that kind of connects quite big. Like it, it's a really iconic, like horror image that has just been copied since like ton, just timeless times over and over again. Right. Like, and it still works like really well. Like he, he just looks, I don't even know how to describe how he looks. It, it, it just, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's elusive and frightening and well, weird. Imagine if you were invisible and you had to like, you know, mask yourself. Like how yeah. to, how do you do that? And you know, like I think today you say, okay, hoodie, mask, glasses, and then like maybe like you know some cream on your on your forehead or whatever. But like wrapping your face up. And again, this is very 1933. It's a you know post World War One. Like it's entirely possible. Like I'm some guy who has a ton of burns from like from from World War One from you know mm. like uh, it's 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 entirely not <laughs> you know like not implausible that you run into somebody who has like full facial burns who needs to like, kind of come in and uh, get a room or whatever um, and so uh, like, while it's you know unusual uh, it's it's you know it's justifiable in that sense it's, yeah. it's still a period where people like you know they actively could like wear gloves all day in their life even if they're not working with heavy machinery or anything like that they just I just wear gloves that's what I do yeah and it's not that weird um, I do like that he makes a decision though to actually like wear a wig under his wrappings <laughs> and have some of it like sort of you know stick out so like there's actually actually some thought into like making the disguise plausible right yeah, yeah. which is good I, I like that a lot um yeah you guys have any sort of final thoughts you want to throw in here or um you guys are probably a better place to answer this than i am because of your journey through cinema so far but you've said that there's been other films that have felt more modern for me, in the editing and the camera moves and all that sort of stuff, it felt like something from 20 years later, which is incredible. And again, the special effects were, I think the big budget of the 1930s is a similar state of the art to the low budget of the 1950s. And it very easily could have been a cheapy made on the quick in 1953 even 1959 even um it's just maybe the tenor of the performances and the pitch that the comedy's at that made it seem like just a film that's of its age but um yeah i just wanted to throw that question at you guys actually how do you think it compares with uh the state of the art of the era i think it's a big leap forward actually um i mean on on like we were talking about how deluge a lot of the effects in that, even though, you know, they're, if you look at them and you, you sort of interrogate them, they are pretty damn cheap. And, I mean, you can sort of see the seams, but they're still super impressive for the time. And they didn't necessarily change all that much in the preceding, like, 20 years or so. Like, it, you'd still see, like, Japanese films using the exact same methods and not looking noticeably all that much better. Um, here you kind of see the same thing, like... The the end special effect 
which is really impressive, looks really good. Yeah. It's just simple, you know, time-lapse stuff. They use that in every fucking Dracula film when Christopher Lee dies. Yeah. You see the time-lapse of, you know, either he resurrects or dies, and it's the exact same fucking effect. And often, uh, maybe it's because it's in color as well, sometimes those Christopher Lee ones actually look noticeably worse. Like, it's like, oh my God, it looks terrible. But here it looked really, really good. And I mean, just the attention to detail with the wire stuff that they had to use sometimes and, you know, with the black velvet suit and everything, it it just made it look so organic and good. And I don't think the effects ne- necessarily leaped a lot in the in the preceding couple decades. Like, it, it feels like this is one of those films where uh, this was stuff people would use you know, for decades to come. And, you know, it might look noticeably better because their budget's slightly higher or something like that. But other than that, this this stuff still looks really good. I thought it held up in, in this watch. I was looking at it, I was like, yeah, I know what's going on, but the movie's so good that I just get sucked into it anyway and I don't care. So, I mean, if it's special effects, can, a move, if a movie can accomplish that, then, I mean, I'm, I'm all for it. I'm, I don't care. It's fine. Well, obviously, you get the like change to color uh, in the you know in the fifties, where you know like, and, and then once you once you move to color and you kind of like you know change the lighting and everything, and then the challenges get greater, and you know, so it's it's kind of tough to compare. Like, one of the things that we have the advantage of, or one is one of the things that this film has the advantage of, is being early enough that like it is like full black and white. There is no expectation that this like looks photorealistic in a uh in kind of a modern sense and you know at the same time like you know you compare this to um memoirs of invisible man the chevy chase movie from uh you know the mid 90s which i was gonna make jokes uh i was gonna i was gonna make jokes about uh the you know oh i accidentally watched uh the the chevy chase one um but i decided not to for obvious reasons Uh, you know uh, you know, you watch that and you look at like even like sort of people talking about the special effects that were available at that time. Um, and they were using some of the same techniques of, you know, oh, it's basically just uh, a blue screen. It's basically just like, you know, Chevy Chase has like his uh, hoodie put over himself and then, you know, he's just running down the street or whatever in a lot of shots. And that's 60 years later. They're still kind of doing the same basic things. They're just... You know, they just have like better technology to do it, and so, in a very real way, like this doesn't really get improved upon until CGI becomes the thing, and you can literally just erase elements from a frame. Um, you know, uh, this is like an optical technique. I mean, obviously, you can sort of like erase elements by hand on a on a on a on a frame of film if you if you put enough effort into it, and so you do get like kind of the big budget stuff. Uh, in the meantime, where they will like literally like put in the effort to like to literally just like physically erase things on the frame of film, but like that's not what's happening at this point, and that's not the way this was made. And I feel like uh, you know again, uh, this this holds up perfectly well up up against anything up until the invention of CGI, and even now I feel like you could make like a low budget feature. That use the same basic techniques and just were kind of like, yeah, this is this is the technique we're using. It doesn't look perfect, but it sells itself, and it's designed to be kind of a low budget thing that 
you know, works on this way, and that's fine. Although, honestly, like a little bit of feature today would actually use CGI because it's easier to use like Adobe After Effects than it is to actually design it in an optical way. Sorry, I just, I just kind of realized that like it actually is cheaper to do the digital effect these days, you know. Um, yeah. But uh, you know, like I think it looks fine. I, I, I like I don't have any. I don't have any complaints about it, frankly. Like it, 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 you know, is it perfect? No. You can obviously you can see the seams, but like any effect like this that isn't like fully CGI, you're gonna see the seams. So, here's an interesting fact for this one: the total body count is 122. Uh, so there's four there's four murders depicted directly on screen, 18 search party members off screen. And the derailment of a train, which results in 100 oh, deaths. So, in total, Dr. Griffin kills 122 people before he's killed, making one of the most bloodthirsty villains of old Universal Picture horror films. And honestly, probably one of the most prolific killers in any film. So Yeah, it's got a rival Jason Voorhees, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. And you are, you're invited to uh, to sympathize with him at the very end. Like, the fact that he dies, you're like, ah, that's serial killer. Yeah. <laughs> It's kind of like Mr. Glass and Unbreakable. It's like, yeah. you, you know, he causes all these train derailments and stuff, but you still kind of have a little bit of sympathy for him because of, you know, he's he's just trying to find that superhero to be his, his counterpart. I, I murdered a bunch of people and found the one guy who lived. And like, <laughs> clearly that guy, that guy, I'm, I'm just trying to find my, I'm just trying to find the hero to my villain. That's the thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, Shyamalan. I mean, it's fucking genius over times. Um, Several notable character actors appear in minor roles, including Dwight Fry as a reporter. Oh, yes. Uh, Walter Brennan as a man whose bicycle was stolen by Griffin. And John Carradine acting at that time under the name Peter Richmond as a Cockney informer. Uh, and I did not catch him in the film. Uh, did no, I did not. But Dwight Fry jumps out straight away. As soon as mm-hmm. I saw that face and heard that voice, like, there he is. Yeah, and one last thing here, and I didn't realize this really until I rewatched it this time and it's like oh yeah this is totally where he got this from uh claude rain's performance in this film inspired mark hamill's portrayal of the joker in the animated series and it's like the laugh and and, and the tenor of the voice and everything is in the joker and that animated series uh, totally well, like he, so many so many psychopathic killers kind of seem to yeah, i mean this is this, this well plays into that right you know uh claude rain's is obviously british but like when you look at the Joker in the animated series, he's got he slightly got like that. Uh, what do they call it? Like the mid Atlantic thing, mid Atlantic accent, right? Where it's you know kind of British, maybe a little bit kind of thing, and and you know, and also just I think the physical performance translates to the animation and stuff, the Joker stuff that in, in that series. So yeah, that's great stuff. So what are we doing next time? Oh, I don't know. I didn't look. <laughs> Let's just take a quick little uh, look here at the movies. Bombshells are only other 33. Yeah, I think we should move to 34 at this point. I think that's okay. the... So The Thin Man and Viva Villa, or Viva Villa. Mm. Um, uh, I mean, The Thin Man, I think we should do... Like, I just kind of want to start moving forward because there's a lot of other great stuff in the mid-30s. So I think we do the Thin Man, and then we move on to thirty-five. I think that's kind of okay. the plan, you know. So, uh, so we'll do the Thin Man next week, and then move on to I think thirty-nine steps 
is going to be uh, is going to be a great uh, choice to do. Um, we've also got the Bride of Frankenstein on our list, yep. um, which you know, James, please come back for any of mm-hmm. these. Like, I feel really bad that it's been like 150 episodes <laughs> since you've been on. Like, if you wait that much longer, it'll be like episode like 416 or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> come back again, Not and we don't yet. want that to happen. So. No, I've had a great time, man. It's been really good being here, and um, I will force my way on at any point. I see a film on the upcoming lineup that I uh, that I fancy talk about. So yeah, thank you for the invitation. I'll take you up on it. Excellent, sure. excellent. Uh, tell the lovely people out there where they can find you on the internet, the stuff you do, your Patreon. Um, plug it all. Okay, uh, so the first and easiest place to find me is on Twitter. Uh, the handle is JimCrop1916. That will lead you to my Patreon, where you'll find my work, my short stories, uh, extracts my upcoming novel. And, uh, yeah, basically I'm an excellent writer, kind of the best you could ever read, and you should mm. come down and read those and pay me a dollar a month for them. And um, I also do a podcast called Pets Lives, very slowly chundering through the morass of classic Doctor Who. And most excitingly, here is a stoop for the They Must Be Destroyed on Sight audience. I'm also the co-host of an excellent podcast that I do with a certain Mr. Lee Russell called City of the Dead. And we are going to be reviving that um, amicus horror style from the grave with uh, Psychomania coming up. So... Watch out for the Pets Lives feed for that. Yeah. And Daniel, where can people find you on the interwebs? Um, you shouldn't find me on the internet. Just don't. Just don't. It's it's a bad time. It's a bad time to find me on the internet. Because, like, you come to this show for uh, fun, goofy conversations about sexy people doing terrible things in movies. And uh, instead, like, most of my... Most of the people who know me on the internet know me because, like... I track terrible people who do terrible things on the internet. Um, by which I mean I track Nazis. And not, like, your ordinary run of the Nazis, but, like, literally the worst people on the internet. Like, you know, if you know of a worse person than a person that I've tracked on the internet, please let me know, because I will continue to track them. That's <laughs> what I do. Um, uh, yeah, I, tra- I track, uh, you, know, uh, you know, genocidal maniacs. And um, I talk about them in a podcast called I Don't Speak German. And uh, you can find that if you're interested. I suspect everyone listening to this podcast already knows about it. I'll speak German. But, um, you know, I try to, you know, let people know. So go yeah. find me. Also, I'm on Twitter, at Daniel Lee Harper, if you want to talk to me or whatever. Always got to assume, uh, that's, the, that's the podcast game, you always got to assume that this is somebody's first episode. So that's yeah, 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 Stanley yeah. rule. Yeah. I'm just kind of imagining, you know, someone tuning into this from James Murphy going like, uh, tweeting this out and going like, hey, I was on this podcast talking about Claude Rains and the Invisible Man. And then uh, they get to the end and they're like, oh, who's this Daniel Harper person? He seems interesting. And then I say like, oh, no, no I track Nazis. And then they go, holy fucking shit. How do you do? How do you do this? Which is kind of the immediate response that everyone says whenever I show them what I've done. You know, so, you know. Yeah. Uh, you can find us at tmbdos.podbean.com where you can find all the requisite links to all the places to find us, including the Facebook group where you can uh, join up and you know talk to us, give us movie suggestions and all that good stuff, leave feedback. And uh, if you want to leave feedback via audio message, uh, there there's an email address posted there where you can send an MP3 in. 
and we have the ability to play it. Uh, usually, not when not when we're on Skype, apparently, but uh, <laughs> when we usually record on on our on our regular shit, we we can play it and respond to it live. So uh, if you feel like doing that, please do. We appreciate it. I don't even ask for iTunes five star reviews anymore because um, I assume everyone's like me and they don't like logging into iTunes because it's just a pain in the fucking ass. And yeah. <laughs> and half the time you're in a different country, so you got to change your region code just to make a review that I can see. Or you gotta you gotta let me know that you made the review and like, hey, I'm from Afghanistan and I did a review of your podcast, gave it five stars. Great, I can't see it. I'm in Canada. I have to change the region code. So you know, that's that. I don't speak German. Has like many, many, many more reviews than uh, this show, and uh, all the reviews are. I don't read them. They're they're terrible. You know. uh but yeah james it was an absolute pleasure to get to talk to you again uh it's been far too fucking long and uh, we got to make a point of it not being as long next time on this show and of course we're going to be talking soon uh for city of the dead so uh, i look forward to that but uh thank you very much for coming on man you know it was my pleasure guys thank you very much indeed best film podcast on the internet and um so thank you very much indeed for having me and uh thank you daniel as always and thank you all for listening we will be back when we're back goodbye
Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Site. For further episodes, our Apple Podcasts, Facebook, and YouTube links, please go to tmbdos.podbean.com. Thank you. Drive through. <laughs>